Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. It really is our prayer for today that God would speak to us through his word. And we're going to do that by picking up today, again, on our series in the Gospel of John, a series we're calling Jesus Changes Everything. And if you've been with us, we've seen already how Jesus changes our beginnings and at how Jesus changes our callings and at how Jesus changes our longings. That in Jesus, God rewrites the story. And it's a story that's all about him and how he fulfills our heart's desires. Because whether we recognize it or not, that's exactly True, that he is, Jesus is, our heart's desire. But more and more, what we've begun to run up against in this book is that Jesus changes everything by going to the cross. That Jesus came, as it says in the opening verses of this book, to show us his glory, which for John is always the glory of the cross. That Jesus came as the one John the Baptist identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and does it as lambs do as a sacrifice, as the sacrifice on the cross. And that he came to be a, a better bridegroom to make possible a better wedding celebrated around a better wine drawn from his own veins on the cross. That he would be a better, a better temple. But a temple that would be raised up after it being destroyed on the cross. And, and today we're going to look at why. Why the cross? Why the centrality of the cross in this gospel that seems to be about so much more about life and light and living like we were always meant to live, why all this emphasis on this instrument of death? Why the centrality of the cross? And to do that, we're going to dive into an encounter between a man named Nicodemus and Jesus. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to John chapter 3. That's where we're going to be bedding down. But before we dive in, let's again begin by praying. Heavenly Father, this is surely the center of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is surely the most important news we could ever receive. And yet, this is surely the news we are most, in our natural selves, averse to hearing. And I pray today, even for those of us who've heard it before, that we would hear it again. And hear it anew. Like it was meant to be heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, who this news is about. Amen. Our culture is obsessed with renewal. Face renewals, skin renewals, soul renewals. 
making new of something gone old, and there's always three simple steps to getting there, isn't there? So you buy the cream, you apply the cream, and then you wash it off. Voila! Or you, you cross your legs, you hum a little, and you get in touch with your inner self. Voila! So that whether it's renewing your skin or renewing your soul, it's as easy as renewing your driver's license. Wait in this line, wait in that line, and then snap a photo that you'll regret until you have to renew it again. That's why someone once said that they wish a DMV employee was waiting at the door to punch you in the face. So then at least while you were waiting in line, you could say, this isn't as bad as being punched in the face. But, but even still, waiting in this line, waiting in that line, waiting in one more line because the first line that you got in was the wrong line, and then snapping a photo you'll regret until you renew again, that's not all that bad. Three simple steps is not all that bad. Whether it's renewing your skin or renewing your soul or renewing your driver's license, that ain't all that bad. Until you realize that you're not really renewing anything. Yeah, maybe you're polishing up a bit, giving fresh vigor or fresh strength to some defunct aspect of your life, but in the end, you're at best dealing with the surface and not what really matters. You're not really renewing anything. One dictionary definition of this term is to return it to its original state, to make new again. But but that ain't going to happen. That ain't going to be achieved by any amount of cream, if we're just being honest. It ain't going to happen by humming your soul into shape. And even the renewal of your driver's license doesn't take care of the traffic violations in your past. I know that one from personal experience. You may get a new card in the end. A new picture, 10 years older, 15 pounds heavier. But you haven't returned anything to its original state, anything. Nothing's been renewed. We've been duped by our culture that is obsessed with renewal into thinking that merely slapping this word onto something and following three simple steps will somehow do the trick when it wants. And none less than in our relationship with God. You can't do it. Going to church, saying grace for the food, and then whatever else you want to add as step three to the list, you can't do it. We need a renewal, a renewed relationship with God but can't get it like that. And this is what this encounter between this man named Nicodemus and Jesus is all about. Because if anyone could have renewed their relationship with God, could have returned it to the original unblemished state it began in, on their own, this would have been the guy. But even for Nicodemus, we're going to see our need first for a far more radical renewal made possible by second, a far more radical procedure. A more radical renewal by a more radical procedure. 
first our need for a far more radical renewal. Let's pick up the story in verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. A couple weeks ago, we saw the Pharisees for the first time in this gospel. Do you remember? They were the ones who sent the envoy to John the Baptist to, to ask who he was because John the Baptist, he had, he had taken one of their renewal rituals, which they really loved, and was making like it meant something more, making like the, their ritual cleansings didn't mean that they were right with God or had gotten right with God, but that they were in need of getting right with God. And the Pharisees didn't like that because these were the Pharisees. These were the rule keepers, the top of the religious food chain. They were the guys who, who, who followed the rules and even made up rules to make sure they were following the rules. And Nicodemus was one of them. But not only was this man named Nicodemus a Pharisee, he was also, it says, a ruler of the Jews, which probably means that he was a member of what was called the Sanhedrin, which for the Jews was like the Senate, the Supreme Court, and the office of the president rolled into one. This was the entirety of their government under God ever since the days of Moses. And it only had 71 members in this Sanhedrin. So not only was Nicodemus in a class of his own as a rule follower, he was also part of this very select group of ruling officials, the rule enforcers. So he was at the top of the top of the religious food chain. And you got to understand then, you got to understand then, before we get into this, how awkward it is for someone who upholds the gavel of society to then find themselves underneath it which sort of explains what we read next. The Pharisees had already sent their envoy to John the Baptist. Now one of them was coming to the one John the Baptist was pointing to because there was something unsettled even among the rule followers and rule enforcers of Israel. Something wasn't satisfying. So it says Nicodemus was a, a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews, but in verse 2, that this man came to Jesus by night. He wasn't interested in being seen, whether by his fellow rule followers or any of the rule breakers of society. The darkness here, it probably describes more than just the time of day. There was Probably no doubt that there was a night that hovered over Nicodemus himself. But pragmatically, he comes by night in order not to be seen. And this is what he says to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these, these signs that you do unless God is with him. Rabbi, we, we know. We, Nicodemus and, and someone else, at least someone else among the Pharisees, among the Sanhedrin, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do what you're doing, the signs that you're doing, unless God is with them. What gives? 
And remember the end of chapter 2 that we already looked at this morning, that, that many had begun to believe in Jesus because of the signs he was doing, but not because they understood what the signs were pointing to. Like being so excited that Uncle Billy's coming for Christmas because Uncle Billy always brings presents at Christmas, even if you never care to try and figure out why Uncle Billy brings the present. So excited. You perform the signs. And Nicodemus is, and at least one other rule follower, rule enforcer, one other of the top of the top of the religious food chain were among those who were beginning to believe. But for Jesus' part, remember, it says in chapter 2 that he wouldn't, he wouldn't entrust himself to them. He wouldn't allow them to believe in him that way. Because believing because of signs isn't always the same as believing in what the signs point to. Still, Nicodemus is interested enough to come around, and and Jesus knows something's unsettled among Israel's best, so he answers Nick before he's even able to ask the question. You see that? Isn't Jesus great? I love this stuff about Jesus. He answers the question before Nick is even able to ask the question. He says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I want you to imagine this. Nicodemus, whose whole life was about following the rules. His whole life was about teaching others to follow the rules and to renew their relationship with God by following the rules. Like renewing a license or a membership at the gym. Yet here's Jesus saying that unless one is born again, anyone has to be born again. Unless one is born from above, that's what this word can mean either way, that unless one is born again, born from above, with a much more radical renewal, they wouldn't be able to see the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was the end game for the Pharisees. It's why you followed the rules as a Jew. It was the reward for following the rules. To see God's kingdom. But even though the kingdom was the end game, Jesus says, you can't see it. You can't see the kingdom unless you are renewed in a much more radical way. So I imagine Nicodemus reacted as any good rule follower would with a sense of inner shock. And you could imagine the awkward silence as he he tries to, to pick up just what Jesus is throwing down. Until finally, he says, he says in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? It's impossible. And and there's probably a hint of sarcasm when he says it, because look at what he says next. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Of course not. And I'm having a little trouble, Jesus, understanding. Nicodemus, you've got to stop yelling, right? Under the cloak of darkness. I'm having a little trouble understanding, Jesus. Just how am I being at the top of the top of the religious food chain isn't renewal enough. I've spent my life 
following the rules. I've spent my life teaching others to follow the rules. And you're saying there's no reward? I haven't let this relationship lapse since it began. I've renewed on time, every time, whenever there was a time to renew. And you're telling me that somehow that's not enough? To which Jesus answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot see unless you're born from above, born again. You cannot enter to be a part of it unless you are born of water and the Spirit. Why? Because Nicodemus, you're not starting off on as good a foot as you think. You think you're all hunky-dory, living life in the shire, doing your best to do the respectable thing like any hobbit would do. But what you don't understand is that in your little time in the shire, Middle Earth is already overthrown. And a darkness is seeping out of this place called Mordor. And in this story, Nicodemus, that darkness has already seeped into your own heart. There is no relationship to renew. This isn't a story about us being good with God. Doing what we've got to do to re-up every once in a while to maintain the relationship. This is a story in which everything's already gone all wrong. And that relationship is already shattered. Which is why we need a far more radical renewal. To be born of water. What all those ritual cleansings pointed to. To, to be washed by God where no soap can reach. And in that, to be likewise born of the Spirit. To be empowered by God to live for God like we never otherwise would. It's just as a prophet named Ezekiel once said, 36th chapter of his book, verse 24, speaking to his people for his God, he says this, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will clean you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, all the rules, Nicodemus, they're not how you get right with God, but point to this more radical renewal, how God's going to get you right with himself, which you can't always see when it happens, but you can always see the effect. And it's not something I see, Jesus says, among you self-righteous rule followers. 
is why Jesus says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you that you must be born again, born from above. You see, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can't see it happen, but you can see its effects. And I can't see it in you. You, even you, Nicodemus, the top of the top of the religious food chain, need a more radical renewal. Now one would have thought that was enough for one night. One would think that's enough for one morning. But Nicodemus asks another question. How can these things be? And while this other question was probably as rhetorical as the other ones he asked, Jesus takes it at face value in order to make the point that this first, more radical renewal is one that is made possible by second, a more radical procedure. How can these things be? On verse 10, Jesus tells us, of that far more radical procedure. It says, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? If you're asking how it's possible, you're Israel's theologian in residence. You are not only the top of the top of the religious food chain, you are the top of the top of the top of the religious food chain. You should know how it's possible. It's like anything of this sort. With man, it's not. With God, all things are. It's like creation at the beginning or recreation at the end because this is just recreation along the way. If you're asking how it's possible, you're Israel's theologian. But I'm going to assume for the minute, you can imagine Jesus going through this. I'm going to assume for the minute, Nicodemus, that you're asking how, as in what way. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Bear witness of what we have seen. He's playing on the nebulous we that Nicodemus started with. We know you're a teacher come from God. No, we know. We know what we're talking about. I know. But you do not receive our testimony, Jesus says. If I have told you earthly things, because that's what this is so far, this is an earthly thing, it's an earthly issue, being born again, the need to be born again. If I've told you earthly things and you do not receive them, you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things, of a a heavenly answer? If you really want to know how and in what way, as in what way, you've got to pick up, Nicodemus, what I'm laying down. And so far, it's not going too good. But I'll tell you anyway. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he, the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. No one's gone up except the one who's come down. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's the way I'm going back, via the cross. That whoever believes in him 
may have eternal life. You want to know how? In what way God's going to do this? Make new birth possible? Make being born of the Spirit, being born of water possible? How he's going to accomplish it? It's through the cross. And it's as if Jesus is telling Nicodemus that to understand to understand how being born again or being born from above is possible, how it's going to take place, all Nicodemus has to do is to look back at that book of the law he knew so well. And especially at the stories that knit together the rules he liked so much. And at what God had been doing for Nicodemus' people all along. Jesus takes Nicodemus back to a story in a book called Numbers, which actually is more story than Numbers. When his people, when Nicodemus' people were wandering in a wilderness somewhere between slavery in Egypt and salvation in the promised land, somewhere between death and life. You got the picture? When all those rules Nicodemus liked so much were still fresh in everyone's mind, and yet his own people proved time and time again that it wasn't the rules they needed, but the God who had given them. Jesus takes him back. And on this particular occasion, in Numbers 21, that people sets out and becomes impatient along the way. It's actually the last in a long line of such instances. And the people, one last time, after having done it again and again and again, one last time speak against God and against their leader, Moses, saying this, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe what worthless food there is, which happened to be the food that God had given them. You see the picture? He takes him back to this story. And so the Lord, in this story, sends among the people fiery serpents. Sends among them snakes. Venomous snakes. And you can't, in the point, this point of the story, you can't miss the fact that, that, that they have a history with snakes. Right? It was, they, the humanity as a whole has a history with snakes. It was a snake, a serpent, that in the very beginning got them to turn away from trusting God in the first place and turned them to start trusting in themselves. This is the story Jesus turns to. And now when they've turned to themselves again, serpents are what God sets slithering among them. And it says, many were bitten, and many began to die. Which brings the plight of their wanderings somewhere between slavery and salvation, somewhere between death and life, a little closer to home. Now they're not just on a journey from death to life, but death and life are together with this venom inside of them. So this same people who cried out against Moses and against God start crying out again, we've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from among us. So Moses prays. But in this story, instead of taking the snakes away, which really wouldn't have done much at this point, instead of taking the snakes away, 
the Lord says to Moses, make a fiery serpent yourself, fashion one, and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. This was the first hospital. If you know the symbol of a hospital, it's a, it's a snake on a pole. This is where they get that from. This was the first hospital. This is where that comes from. But here it's still a question about who they're going to trust and about who they're going to look to and about whether they're willing to admit what's really wrong with them. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a a serpent bit anyone, they would look at the bronze serpent as a picture of what was wrong with them. And they would live. And they would live. Death and life in their veins, and they would live. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, so must the Son of Man be lifted up as heaven's answer to earth's issue. And this is why the cross Because humanity is in need, and I am the hospital. Because we are in need of a far more radical renewal made possible by a far more radical procedure. The cross is a picture of what's wrong with us. That before God, in God's eyes, we're as good on our own as crucified for our sins. as much as the cross is a picture of the radical length that he's gone to take care of that problem. So John continues. Jesus continues. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Life and death. Because he, was not, he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He has not believed in God's only way, in heaven's only answer. And this is the judgment, John says. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness, love the night rather than the light because of their works being evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. A radical renewal made possible by a radical procedure that calls for a radical response. And yet it's a curious thing how Nicodemus shows up that night to talk to Jesus, the light of the world, but in the end fades into the darkness of this scene. You ever notice that? Ever notice how the story just ends? 
You never get to see the response that we'd expect of looking to the cross, looking to the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. Because it's not a response we find in Nicodemus, at least not now. But look who we do see it in. Verse 22 continues. It's the same story. It's really meant to be the foil for what Nicodemus doesn't have, what Nicodemus doesn't show us. So verse 22 says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Jordan, Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And the only Jew, the only particular Jew that we've been introduced to in this story yet is Nicodemus. I got a pretty good idea, a pretty good shot that this is our guy. Still trying to figure out this thing over purification. Coming, oh, and John's baptizing again in the wilderness, and Jesus is doing it too. And he just had this conversation at night, and he's coming to figure out what's going on. And it says, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him doesn't sound like a ritual purification issue. Maybe at the heart it is, though. John answered, a person, though, cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Not one thing, not one role, not one right. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. That is the radical response called for by this radical procedure that accomplishes a radical renewal because John the Baptist, unlike Nicodemus, recognized that at least at this point in the gospel, his need for a far more radical renewal and knows that that's only possible by a far more radical procedure that he can't do for himself. So his radical response is to get out of the way. And look to his radical Savior. To put his faith in his radical Savior. To believe in his radical Savior. And let him do his radical thing. He must increase. I must decrease. Let me leave you then with a few final thoughts about what this radical response looks like. That it's active that it's ongoing, and that it's significant. First, this radical response is active. Many of us slip into thinking about faith and belief that they're passive things, when really they're not. They're active. And it begins by recognizing both for ourselves and for others 
that while we may look like we're at the top of the top of the top of the religious food chain, we're really all just snake food. It's about recognizing that, about wearing that actively, not, not, not passively, but recognizing that actively as we wear it on our sleeves. That all the world would go after Jesus and only to Jesus. And we, like John the Baptist, we would declare that, that in that, that is, that is our only joy, our, our joy complete, that he must increase, we must decrease. So I want to encourage you this week to find an opportunity to declare your radical need for a radical Savior with someone that you've never done that with before. There's plenty of opportunities in life. I just want to encourage you, find one person you can do that with that you've never done that with before. And I'll start. Hi, my name is Jesse. I am a sinner. I am self-consumed. I am self-centered and an all-around selfish individual. Even before coming here today, that has bled out of my life because within me, death and life live together. And my only shot in life, my only shot at life is if God interferes on my behalf. Any good that comes out of me is merely a reflection of what he's already done on my behalf. Because I don't have it in myself. I am in need of a radical renewal that our culture doesn't have an answer for. And I'd invite you to declare the same to someone this week that you've never said that to before. So it's active. It's wearing it on our sleeves. Second, this radical response, though, is ongoing. This is as much an ongoing thing as it is a one-time thing. Jesus died once for all. And I'm sure that, that, that for those of us who've, who found ourselves this side of the cross, putting our trust in the cross, that that, that was a one-time thing as well. But it is as much an ongoing thing. So even if we start out like John the Baptist... It's easy for us to slip into responding eventually like Nicodemus in the long run. Because it's nice to be at the top of the top of the top of the religious food chain. And yet that's detrimental not only to ourselves, but also to the world around us. Something about having snake venom inside of us brings that out, right? We go back to what that snake first did before us. But it's detrimental, not just for us, but the world around us. Slipping into that is not a good thing. And so I want to encourage you to take a hard look at life. And and even today, to identify, before the day is done, the latest area that you're slipping into judging others. Where are you holding yourself up as a a, a rule follower, subtly becoming a rule enforcer instead of pointing people to Jesus? Where's the latest? Because looking back to Jesus is as much an ongoing thing as it is a one-time thing.
So it's active, it's ongoing. Lastly, it's significant. Because this radical renewal of the heart is really the foundation for all renewal otherwise. If statistics are right, many of us now have equipment in our basements, cluttering up our basements that we bought last month and are no longer using, attempting to renew our bodies or renew our faces, whatever. You know, I don't know how, how many, how many, how many bottles of cream do we have to have as gifts from people? And how many do we buy? I hope we don't buy any of them. There are so many renewing your face or, or whatever you've gotten into, renewing your soul or, or renewing your marriage or renewing your reputation. But you have to see that all other renewals in, in that minor sense are dependent upon and have to flow out of this renewal in the macro sense if they're going to work. You start rubbing cream on your face, it's going to be the death of you if you don't see that this body is only going to be renewed in relationship to the cross when God renews everything. You'll rub your skin clean off your face. And so recognize this week, and I'd even encourage you today to take out a piece of paper and write down the three or four areas in your life that that are in need of renewal in this minor sense. And then under each of them, think about how each is related to renewal in this more major sense. Because this is not only active, ongoing, but this Radical renewal is significant, and all others, in any sense, ought to flow from and be dependent upon it. Because we are, in every way, in need of a far more radical renewal, made possible by a a, a far more radical procedure that calls for a radical, active, ongoing, significant response. This is what faith looks like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may that radical response be ours. Belief in what those signs were pointing to, that radical procedure of the cross that was both a picture of what we deserved and what you did through your Son to take care of it. That we might know a far more radical renewal, washed in the blood and filled with His Spirit. Simple as three steps. Because He died for the complexity of our sins. In His name we pray. For joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K I S H Bible.org.